You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're doing the 2017 addition to our 2022's edition of Stephen King of Palooza, the adaptation of 1922. Well, wow, that's a lot of numbers. <laughs> it is a lot of numbers, Lids. This is my confession. And that's all I got. <laughs> That is all you need, really, honestly, because that is what the bulk of this is. Although it's not all voiceover, which I really appreciate. I've stumbled into films that are all voiceovers, recollections like this, and it does not work for me. The portions that they do as a voiceover work very, very, very well. And this particular film is as directed by Zach Hilditch. I can't think of anything else that that person has directed, but... I think that this is one of the better Stephen King adaptations, and I really like that it captures the feel of the novella or the short story or whatever, because when I read this in Full Dark, No Stars, I remember feeling transported. Stephen King's really good at building scene, building characters, transporting you to a certain time and place. If you want to have like hot, sweaty summer in the 50s with kids on bikes saving the neighborhood, then Stephen King's your guy. And he does transport you to a certain degree, but you can always feel a sense of like removal from that. Even if you were a kid on a bike saving the neighborhood in the 50s, there is like that distance. But 1922 there's something about it that lulls you sucks you into hemingford home nebraska and puts you in the soil with the dirt under your nails and the corn silk tickling your cheeks in the hot horrible summer and you can feel the monelessness Uh creeping in it's a very very transportative story absolutely i think that the thing that I take the most away from this film appropriately titled 1922 is that the year itself is very much front and center. This really weird time in American history, maybe just Western history in general, that you don't see too often where we were moving into the modern era in which you and I and everyone listening to this would recognize this is not so far flung into the future that they have television, they don't have the internet, they don't have a lot of creature comforts, you know, there's no there's no space travel, there's nothing. But they do have films you know, Wilf could have gone to go see the cabinet of Dr. Caligari if he was so inclined. So this is before even talkies. It still has a lot of recognizable things in it. And I found myself constantly reminded that, oh yeah, this is not sometime in the early 1800s, even though 
everything looks so uh, pastoral and they don't have uh, electricity. It's a lot of lantern lights. They have automobiles, but they are all crank operated. But nobody's riding a horse. They, they do have cars and any t- they, they do have tractors and they have all these things. And it kept reminding me, oh, yeah, this is not so far in the past particularly when they get to Omaha and then you see the city living. I found that such a fascinating aesthetic that really lends itself to the overall atmosphere. I think that we're more easily transported to this time than a younger generation city dweller because you have experienced cottage life to a degree that most people would not be comfortable with with mm-hmm. not having electricity and having like not running water that comes cold out of a tap with a hot water heater, you know, all these electrically enhanced things that we're so used to. And even though our my grandmother's farm was very modern, we did rely on a lot of older and if not Amish style farming practices. So we were very, I was very used to like hand tools and having lanterns and those sorts of things. And I knew people that didn't have indoor plumbing, even in the mid to late seventies. So it's not that removed from us. Like we did experience as, as as creatures on earth, this boom, of course, the industrialization of the world that really took us from the stone age in a lot of people's minds to not like the, the precipice of the modern world that we live in today. And this was like just that edge of it where people, the common person could have a motorized vehicle and could probably have a film in their home or were, could dabble in photography. And the radio having shortwave at home was a, a possibility, which was like a crazy technological leap at the time. They were talking about, hey, you need indoor hot and cold running water kind of thing. That was the new big thing. And I think that that's just endearing because those are things that we can look back in our past or the one generation before us and have recollections of those things. So they're not too distant, like the 1800s or 1700s, when things were just too archaic for us to really relate to. Yeah, uh, I had to just keep reminding myself like I said again and again like oh they had those oh they had that you know they're listening to records or um uh there's another, there's some other peculiarities about Wolf himself that uh that um I was kind of shocked by that have nothing to do with te- the technology um he's a reader he seems just like a very simple and I think he plays it up uh to to throw people off of his trail that he's just like well, I don't know nothing about any of that there. I'm just a simple farmer, you know. Just living my simple life and just care about my land. Like, he's that guy, right? But he's actually a lot more intelligent because they keep cutting back to him and, you know, glasses, sitting upright, reading a book. Like, he's an avid reader. We see him reading two different books during the course of this film, which lets you know that you know, he's not just uh, picking up a book and sort of like looking at a couple of pages, maybe bored. He is consuming literature. And I really like that about him in that 
he could blend in to the city. He could get or strive to afford some more creature comforts that are technologically advanced within his household. But he really, really prides himself on being this man of the land, even though he is a man of letters at the same time. And he seems to want this balance for his son. And that's the one thing about these characters that don't change, no matter what era you're looking at. If you want to go back to the Pleistocene or forward to... 2344 people are going to be greedy people are going to be selfish people are going to be uh, afraid of change like those very human elements that wolf really embodies especially like the fear of change i think like the the biggest stretch he does into common era other people and keeping up with the times is reading books because he can have a little more rigid control over that, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe that is his secret vice, his dirty pleasure, maybe. Let me ask you this, Lids. You are the... This is Stephen King Apalooza. And for listeners, if you don't know, Stephen King Apalooza is where we just do Stephen King movies. Because there's a lot of them. And Stephen King movies, uh, you know, obviously have to come from his adapted work now when did you first encounter the novella that this is based on and follow-up question were you interested or excited when you found out that they were going to do a film adaptation of this one in particular or were you cautious about it i was excited although when it was first announced i had thought it would going to be a flanagan thing because there was a lot of flanagan Stephen King hit Netflix at the time and which I have no nothing against that. I like the Mike Flanagan Stephen King adaptations a lot. I like Mike Flanagan's work quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I had though confused this with a different story from Stephen King that I was like, oh God, how's that gonna go over? I forget the title of it, but it's a story of a man who has a coin in his pocket and he's being questioned by authorities about the sexual assault of a young girl, if not the death and sexual assault of a young girl and it's his um his questioning his interrogation and it is like a little bit a little bit much and at the ending of the the story is a lot darker than a you would even imagine Stephen King going for uh that's the story I thought it was so then when I got my got myself straightened out and realized what it was I was like oh yeah that's that one story in full dark no stories that I like because I didn't like the rest of full dark no stars at all mm-hmm. so i was pretty happy once i realized that it may not be the story that i thought was the most controversial and also a story that i did really enjoy i see i came to this unsurprisingly completely ignorant i watched this back in 2017 with a friend of mine and it was their idea to put it on. They were in the mood for a a scary movie and they had heard that there was this new Stephen King adaptation on Netflix. And so in a a hangout session, we just turned it on and, and watched it. I didn't really know what to expect. Although I will say that generally speaking, this is not the type of film 
that I would gravitate towards. The visuals don't grab me, at least on the the one sheet. I'd be like, oh, what is this? And I would read the the uh, synopsis and I would say to myself, huh, okay, that's kind of interesting, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm in for the mood for something sleepy because this is quite sleepy and that's not a negative thing, but sometimes when I am watching a film, I'm not always in the mood for something that is going to really require my full attention. And I don't mean that in a sense of I want to look at my phone while I'm watching the movie. What I mean to say is I have ADHD and so it's hard for me to focus on things sometimes. And if a movie has a a quicker pace or some more action beats or as sad as the sounds, loud noises, I am more inclined to like keep constantly my attention as opposed to my mind's going to start to wander and I'm going to disassociate and not pay attention and then I'm going to be lost and then I'm just going to be frustrated and then I'll turn the movie off. And so because I was watching this with company, I ended up watching a film that I probably wouldn't have watched on my own if I'm being brutally honest with myself. But I also really liked it in the sense that when I watch a movie that I'm like, oh, this is a film. This is a this is a very serious piece. And this is something that, so stupid to say, this is like something grownups would watch. This is, this um, seems uh, like that type of movie for me, but I always was hesitant to bring it to the show because if this movie counts for a splatterpictures.net pick, then I don't think there's anything off the table anymore in terms of, is this enough horror? Because do you feel like this is a horror movie proper? Or do you feel like this is more of a drama with some chills? It is definitely a drama with some chills, although it's the the corpses in it. It's the corpses, Wes, that, that keep me pulling this into the horror genre proper. I mean, it's not even just the Stephen King name, because we all know that Stephen King as a name does not mean horror specifically. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean we were talking about the Dark Tower earlier before the show. And like that is magic realism. There's all sorts of like just plain drama. There's tragedies there. he, He does all sorts of just like very mundane, like his novella Elevation is absolutely not horror. It's hardly even drama. I don't know what it is. But he does a lot of these just dramas, right? This one, though, lives somewhere in between Pet Cemetery and Sling Blade for me. And while Sling Blade mm, isn't a horror mm. story, it has elements of the very deep darkies that we find within mm. our fellow man. And it goes beyond tragedy in, and drama into horror, much like Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now or whatever you want to call it. The Joseph Conrad book is a horror gothic in a way, even though it doesn't have gothic elements necessarily, but it is that very deep, long look into the dark night of man that makes me put this into horror. I think you're absolutely right, 
about that. Old Wilford's got himself a dark passenger. Uh, but fuck all that, Litz. What is this movie even about anyways? This movie is about how you can not only have a person in a well, you can also have a person inside you, Wes. A person inside you. It's about things inside things. Things in wells, things in people, things in walls, and things in cars. Oddly <laughs> enough. There's also there's also an aspect of uh, this movie is about a uh, city mouse shouldn't marry a country mouse. Yes. The wife, Arlette, played by Molly Parker, is unlikable, but not by her own fault. Like... The reason she is unlikable is because she is so uncomfortable and so full of like contempt and just wants out of her situation that she's married herself into so badly. And on one hand, we should feel bad for her, but the way that she's behaving is so unlikable. It's such a weird character. There's an aspect to Arlette's character that I'm very sympathetic with they she alludes that first and foremost she got knocked up at a young age by a person that she did not intend to marry probably was more interested in a bit of a tryst and nothing more and got saddled with him and now when her father died she inherited all of this land a hundred acres a valuable farmland that she could sell that would be her ticket out of there and in combination of her husband's 80 acres so 180 acres of good farmland she could have her dreams come true if not for the fact that she decided to marry a or was forced to marry a just simple country bumpkin who has no interest in changing anything he likes the old ways in 1922 he probably wishes it was 1822 he just wants a simple uh pre-industrial existence and working on the farm and he says it right at the top uh, a, a man's worth is his land and what he has to pass on to future generations. And that's it. That, that is the measure of a man. There, there is a, a simplistic beauty in that you have two people who aren't philosophically wrong, just literally wrong with each other or for each other. And it causes this tension because this is, this is almost like an argument. This is an argument that's not going away. And sometimes I wonder how, married people reconcile this type of thing where someone's like i want to move here i want my life to be like this and I, we've already gotten married and maybe we should have discussed this beforehand or maybe i thought i could convince this person of something and they're not going to be convinced so the choice is move and one this the choice is always going to be one person is happy and the other person makes the sacrifice and just kind of shuts up about it and then maybe that grows into resentment, uh, quiet resentment or not so quiet resentment. I don't know. But that's what happens here. I think the darkest aspect of this story 
for me is not that Wilf gets the urge to kill his wife. It's the corruption of his son to help him that, in my opinion, is the most fucked up aspect of it. Yeah, I and I can sort of sympathize with Wilf to a certain extent in that what is so wrong with wanting things the way that they've been? He's in a good position, uh, probably remarkably better than he was before he married Arlette, because I don't know if he had land of his own or a house. He didn't seem to bring anything to the table as far as this marriage went, aside from semen. But he has a son and land, a house, wife or not, doesn't really matter, because she doesn't really contribute much to the household anyway, because he can cook just fine, it seems. But that, and that's really all that she does. So he wants to pass the land on to his son, who's going to pass it on to his son. His son seems to be happy out there. His son is a great little farmer. His son has got a shine on the girl next door who abuts their land. They have adjacent land. They're two farmers that help one another during haying and harvest. So like, it's the perfect thing. So I can understand why Wolf is like, why do you want to screw with such a good thing? We have a good thing here. We can just subsist we could prosper our son will have something to give our son mm -hmm. like he's got this idea and i think that that's where not only the collusion between him and his son and him drawing his son into this darker impulse and having his son as an accomplice to murder it's really born of i want to pass this on to you so you can sort of relate to that to a certain degree if you can really get behind the the measure of a man is his land and what he can leave to his son. I think that Wilf found himself in a good position because his son is just, you know, in love with the, the, the neighbor girl, Shannon, in a way only a teenager could be in love with another person. It's all-encompassing, and it's uh, passionate, and it's uh, overwhelming, and all of those words. And the way that you can get a son to essentially betray his mother is to threaten to take his uh, love interest away. Spit to a teenager that would be um, devastating, uh, particularly since like, you know, she likes him, he likes, the, the, and, and you know, his, his father doesn't, is trying to put the fear of change into him. You're going to go to the city and you're going to forget about all this and you're going to change your ways and, you know, your mother's not going to like, uh, you know, she criticizes you and she's not really, you know, on your side and she doesn't care about Shannon. She just wants a whole uh, different life for you. Uh, both of them, uh, Arlette and Wilf, have like fairly shaky reasonings for wanting to be the person that's taking care of Hank, or Henry, I suppose he's known as this time. Mm -hmm. But Wilf's come, seems to come from more of a position of like, this is all he knows and this is his life. And her position just seems to be like, well, boy 14 needs his mother. I'm like, mm, all right, I guess. I suppose it's a weird way of saying I love my son and I want to and I want to take him with me but uh, this this slow descent is what leads to the murder of Arlette and this murder is so 
messy. And uh, I was watching this with Cassandra and they had said, this is actually a pretty violent movie. It's pretty gory in some parts. And I was like, yeah, I guess it is. I didn't really think about it. But I also don't see how Wilf needed his son's help to do this because what ends up happening is he relents. Wilf basically tells his wife that, okay, fine, you know what, you're right. Maybe we can make a go of it in the city. And and Henry was the one that convinced me that this is okay. This is all to like put her, uh, you know, let make her let her guard go down. And then they celebrate and then their mother gets exceedingly drunk because they want to celebrate and she's a messy drunk and she says some pretty crude things to both her son and uh and i was like jesus christ like like this sort of uh plain-faced prim and proper woman really becomes quite the lush once she's had a few too many and i i mean really when they they put her to bed like completely fucking passed out drunk and why do you need your son to hold her down? Like, you're just going to stab her. Just stab her in the face. Like, you don't need to do, or right in the heart. You don't need to really have him be an accomplice. She's so drunk that they could have probably slashed her wrists and made it look like something completely different. And he didn't need to involve his son. And I think that, I, I don't know why he wants to prove, and I think that this is the, the worst toxic family ever in a way and it's repeated a lot in real life where you see parents trying to show the other parents weaknesses to the adolescent offspring mm -hmm. and I, I, it sickens me it always sickens me it sickens me when other people belittle one another and they're supposed to be in some sort of loving relationship Arlette's an easy target though and I suspect that and I think that the writing here and the, the movie the acting really speaks volumes as to why you forgive wealth a lot of stuff you can see his reasoning in that the way that she ended up in a family with him in the first place might have had something to do with her being such a sloppy drunk. The fact that she dislikes the, to party, live it up, even though we only see a glimpse of it, this seems like a regular fucking attitude of hers. So she's going to go to the big city and she is going to absolutely waste all of her money. She's not prudent. She doesn't run the household or run the farm. She makes dresses in her free time and cooks food once in a while and sits on the porch and bees a bitch. That's what she does. So I don't think she's going to really do very well if she ever did make it to the city with her hundreds of dollars or whatever the farm would have sold for, a couple thousand or whatever at the time, which is millions. She would have been a millionaire, right? But she would have definitely blown it all mm -hmm. in a foolish way because she has no concept of running a household or a life. So I can really side with him, but I hate that he's throwing it in her face. And I hate that she's throwing Wilf's country ways in Henry's face. It's, it's disgusting behavior, but it would have been so much easier. And then we wouldn't have a film. and We wouldn't be here talking about it. If he would have just pushed her in the well, just push her in the well. She's drunk. Just push her in the fucking well, push a cow in on top of her, whatever, like start filling it in. Like no one's going to ask. You don't have to cover this shit up. You are, in the country and this is something that plays really well for wolf and he mentions it like things happen in the country and people don't really ask too many questions yeah man's wife is um is his own business 
I uh, we were t- I was talking to Cassandra while we were watching this, and and we were discussing how there's no forensics, there's no criminal profiling, there's no anything. If someone goes missing, and you got no body, and you got uh, and and it's like, hey, what happened to your wife? I don't know. Can I look at? Can I search your house? Sure. Looked through the house, didn't find a body, didn't find any blood. Yeah, she took her shoes, took her dresses. I don't know. And they're like, oh. Okay, I don't know. Getting away with crimes back then is so easy. I mean, nowadays, like, I couldn't even, like, there would be video evidence of me if I left this building. Like, and you walk down the street and you're like, oh, yeah, that person had, uh, that person has a doorbell cam. Oh, and that street has uh, security things. And this building has security features. So you have, like, now, and, like, there's, all kinds of tests that you can do and there's nothing back then nothing so this is a, a fairly good way to um this is a fairly good way to get out of a, a marital dispute back in 1922 i suppose and wilf gets his way they toss this woman down into this old dried up well and this is where the most Stephen King aspect of this film comes into play, in my opinion. Stephen King, from the adaptations of things that I've seen, and uh, the very limited amount of Stephen King literature that I have read, it kind of falls into two different categories. Either there's some big monster that's doing stuff, or there is a kind of vague is it supernatural is it in this person's head we don't really know it's not really that important but this person has become haunted and tortured whether by supernatural forces or their own guilt i think that you can make in my opinion a very strong argument that nothing supernatural happens in this film in my opinion there's no evidence of anything supernatural happening it sounds like someone had a very bad year based off of a lot of bad coincidences and circumstances that start with the brutal murder of his wife but this is where the rat aspect comes into it there's nothing supernatural about this you throw meat into a hole in the heat of summer it's going to attract rats it's quite gross how they do the rat coming out of Harlette's mouth. I was like, ew, that's fucking nasty. Now, I I agree that it is very nasty. And there is nothing supernatural about rats being attracted to dead things, especially if these particular rats, they spend a lot of time in in the barn where they might get the odd chicken egg or dead animal and eat the cow feed or whatever it is that rats do in barns, aside from just fuck shit up poop all over they follow because it's the old livestock wells so it's an unused well but it is attached to the barn so the rats from the barn can get into this well but there's probably little food for them to be had it's a well-kept farm you know there's aside from grains and stuff they have nothing to really scavenge so this is like uh christmas for them christmas for rats but There is a supernatural aspect if you look at it through the eyes of the constant reader who realizes that this is Hemingford Home, Nebraska. 
this is where Mother Abigail Ooh. lives. This is along the beam, Wes. The beam? The beam. All things follow the beam. You could surmise that this is part of the long-term residency of Randall Flagg, who does have some sort of kinship with all things dark and creeping crawling like rats and perhaps this is part of that seed coming from another realm with like you would discover in the drawing of the three perhaps or if you go back to eyes of the dragon you can you can get some randall flag walking dude sort of vibes from all of this and knowing that mother abigail is somewhere just down the road being the counterpart to that so if wilf would have encountered mother abigail or her kin then he might have turned he might have like seen the light so to speak but he's under the influence of some sort of darkly seated supernatural presence that is not only guiding these rats around but they are influencing his decisions if he wasn't in hemingford home he may have never sought to kill his wife and he may have done the things that you or an I as a viewer or him deep down inside know there's another way even his son says later on in the film there was another way there was a you could have compromised you could have done the things that us as viewers want him to do just go to the city just divorce her tell her to go sell half the land whatever it takes you don't need to fucking kill people but now there's the dark tower influence somewhere underground in Hemingford home. So I think that being like the Stephen King fan or whatever, you, you see that there, there is no other way. The rats are going to mock him and influence him and shove this deed in his face that they had something to do with in influencing him to do in the first place. And this is why you get Lydia to be on your show about Stephen King Apalooza because of all this extra information that she has that I do not have because I'm practically illiterate. But you're absolutely right. I didn't consider any of that. And uh, perhaps uh, I, I, I was too harsh. This is supernatural. You've, you've convinced me. Well, there are other things that happened to it that I'm like, that's pretty. Because he, he gets whispered to by the dead. So I was like, that's fairly supernatural, giving him knowledge that only the dead can know. Unless he's absolutely, totally far gone mentally. <laughs> you can make the argument that he is, because especially when he's holed up in his, when winter rolls in, I'd say that's the most insane version of him. Beforehand, it's that intense summer heat. And one of the things that, as a person like me, I run very hot and I am no good in the summertime. I, I cannot fucking stand the heat whatsoever. And I live a very charmed life. I have central air. I, I can keep my place quite cold. And I do. I was thinking about like, oh poor Lydia, you would you would you would have to be in gloves and mittens in here. It's probably so cold for you. But the inescapable heat that everyone has when this murder first takes place. I can only imagine what that would be like, where you're just hot. You're just fucking hot and you have farm work to do. And there's a cool side of the house. The sheriff uh, mentions that when he comes around looking because the Flanagans are these wealthy people 
who Arlette was planning to sell her land to, and they bring themselves big city lawyer coming to uh, seal the deal away. But of course, Arlette's gone missing. They find this very suspicious. And even though they don't have forensics or criminal profiling, they do have common sense. And all of a sudden, when a man uh, doesn't want to sell and is very local, uh, vocal about that, and everyone knows that his wife visited the city, to try to get the land that she is legally entitled to. She's already spoken to lawyers about this. Uh, the 100 acres versus his 80 acres. She wants to sell that. Very valuable. It's by the creek. So, you know, uh, there, there's that. Well, it's just a little odd, don't you think? That you telling me that she took $200 on her person, grabbed some of her favorite dresses and her favorite jewelry, picture of her mom and her dad, and left on foot in the middle of the night and when, where, uh, just gave you all the land, gave up all of it and, uh, just walked off on her own. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And they know that, but their hands are kind of tied when both Henry and Wilf say, well, she just left and I don't know what's going on. And we got farm work to do and you checked the house and she's not at the house. And, uh, they've also done the clever thing of, filling in that well and how do you do that well you just put more meat on top of the meat that you already put in there and that would excuse the reason why you're filling in the well and the reason if there's any odors that would excuse that or the increased rat population because he's going to sacrifice his cow or one of his cows to fall down the well in a scene that's actually kind of funny in a in a grim sort of way and um that's how you do it and it seems that old Wilf has uh, gotten away scot-free, as they say. One thing I like about this, and it's that the unspoken fable behind all of this is like, not only like careful what you wish for, but like that the fact that your one action is going to lead to a butterfly effect, a, a ripple in, in a pond that may have reverberations that you cannot comprehend a year down the road from the beginning after he kills his wife when he says there's one thing about killing that i found out that day is that it is messy work because they clean that house spotlessly knowing that somebody's going to come looking mm -hmm. for her not only because she's embroiled herself with these lawyers and flanagan wants that land and da, 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 da. even if somebody just walked in like their neighbor from down the road they they don't want it to look like a goddamn bloodbath and they had kind of botched this what we think could have been a relatively simple killing and there's fucking blood everywhere. So not only did they have to spend almost 24 hours cleaning the goddamn place. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, how they replaced that mattress. Like it was soaked with blood and they scrub every floor that the trail of blood where they dragged her body out of the house, having to sacrifice their, their cow and then days worth of filling in this stupid well, like, just work upon work upon work. It was never ending. Not only do they have to cook for themselves, but they had mm -hmm. a week's probably full of work. Hot, sweaty, horrible work that doesn't really do much to pull them together as a unit, as father and son. It does more and more to drive them apart because after the police have shown up, the lawyers have come and gone, it's like weighing heavily on the son where he keeps checking with his father, like you would expect a 15-year-old boy who's been 
enticed into murder to do. Like, did I do good? Was that enough of a lie? He's also throwing out things where he understands they didn't need to do that. Understands that now they're kind of trapped here with this lie between them. That he's probably going to crack because he can't even look at his girlfriend in the eye anymore. You get a lot of the sense of the repercussions of being a murderer through Hank more so than Wilf. Hank, as he decides to be known as at this point, he, he comes to his father in the middle of the night. We see part of this conversation initially, and then towards the end of the film, we see uh, the rest of the conversation, which I think is very poignant. It's very, and I want to say th this film rests on the very uh, sturdy shoulders of Thomas Jane, who has done Stephen King adaptations before, including ones that we've done previously. Like he was the lead in The Mist and we did that. And uh, he's also in Dreamcatcher, a film that a lot of people didn't really seem to like at the time. I thought Dreamcatcher was cool, but uh, you know, maybe a rewatch, I won't think that way, I don't know. And But also the rest of the cast just does a, a, a wonderful job. And it's a relatively small cast as well. It's just such a quiet, picture and I and I think about those nights in that farmhouse and how dark the house is and how quiet it must be and there are no distractions no buzzing of lights no anything and you're just alone with your thoughts and what that must be like if your thoughts are I killed my mother or I helped my father kill my mother we tossed her slashed up body down an old well at the time when they're doing it henry says this is no place for mama like like this is not a proper grave we're not burying her properly we're like throwing her in a fucking hole to be gnawed on by fucking rats even um wilf has this moment when he sees the rats all over his wife and and her body is sort of looking up at him he throws the suitcase at her like get away from her there's there's this hint of i don't like regret seems to be the wrong thing but there's still that respect of the body the fact that he was in love with this person at one time and and he became overcome with murder this was despite the fact that his mother could be crude and you know, and he thought that she was trying to take him away from the love of his life. She was still his mother. So again, it's it's in that tricky position of not agreeing with someone, but them technically not doing anything wrong. And Henry becomes so haunted by his actions. And I'd wonder what that... Now, when I'm sad, when I'm upset... When, when things are gnawing at me and if I feel guilty about something that I've done, I've never killed anybody. I'm here to confess live on radio. But, uh, but I have ways to distract myself. I can read. I can watch movies. I can play video games. Uh, there's lots of noise and commotion. I live in the city. But imagine if you had none of that and no concept of any of that. And you were just like, I, just, I, I guess I'm just going to sit and listen to the crickets and um, and imagine me killing my own mother again and again and again. It would be easy to see how that could drive somebody insane. And I'm very curious, do you think 
Hank, young Hank, is maybe seeing some of this stuff too, and he just never says it? To a certain degree, perhaps, because when Wolf starts having some very vivid hallucinations, and he's like riding around in his long johns with a gun at night, and his son comes out to be like, what is it? I thought I heard sounds. He seems to accept that his father is reacting to something that other people couldn't see or he could barely explain properly. He has an excuse of, I thought there was a fox out there or whatever it is that he gives an, as an excuse. I don't think Hank buys it. I think Hank maybe has been seeing these same sort of things. The, the land itself could be entirely haunted by their dead mother. Or like I suspect the what the equivalent of an Indian burial ground under the house, the beam, the dark tower presence, Randall flag presence, whatever it is that you want to call it, the big deep darkies that are under the ground that have tainted this area and subsequently the people live on it. So that that could be very well. Or Hank is one hundred percent a balanced individual that's been warped now by his father and his actions, because he does take some actions not long after these scenes, are, are those of a fairly rational person who's been put in a very bad situation. Or is it that madness that's driving him? It's so hard to tell with Hank. Now, Hank does the one thing that everyone told him not to do when he was getting real sweet on uh, old Shannon. He knocked her up. He got her pregnant. And and now they're in this uncomfortable position. Wilf and uh, his neighbor friend, you know, they're like, you know, Wilf needs to like find some money because they're going to do the old. I got a, I got a good daughter. She's a wholesome daughter. These she's she is not going to be a, a teenaged mother. And she is going to go to uh a home for girls for four months and then she is going to come back in four months and that is it she is and uh, they say four months because she's five months along so it's one of those old like she's you know visiting her aunt in vermont and then she comes back and she's had the baby and the baby's been put up for adoption and we all just pretend like none of this fucking happened now, this is tantamount to separating Hank and his uh, girlfriend, who is now carrying his child, and Hank wants to take this. And I think that this is like a really, I like this conversation between Wilf and his son, because Wilf is very like, you are not going to fucking run off with a 15-year-old girl. I mean, like, it's not like she... They're both too young. And he's like, you're not fucking going to do that to this girl. You're not going to ruin her fucking life because you couldn't keep it in your pants when everyone told you to keep it in your fucking pants because this exact fucking thing would happen. No, and he puts his father in his place in a way because his, there's one thing that his father has actually taught him. The one lesson out of all the lessons that his father might have tried to teach him, the one thing he understood was when there's something you want, you take it. And... That is the most horrible lesson to have taught a kid, especially when it doesn't matter about other people's feelings, other people's lives. You're going to go after what you want. He also has 
hormones, a potential baby of his own, all these things that would be driving Hank to do what he does, to chase after his girlfriend, everything else be damned. It's it's really that driving lesson of if you, if you want something, you take it. When Hank leaves, he he and his father go to the bank because Wilf needs to come up with $75, Lydia. 75 Christian fun bucks because he's got to contribute to Shannon going to essentially a fucking orphanarium for a, a home for girls. And it's going to cost $300. Liz, would you like to know what $300 in 1922 would cost you and me right now? Yes, I would. It would cost you in excess of $5,200. That's the entire cost of putting Shannon up into this. Wilf's neighbor says, you're not a rich man. I get that. I don't expect you to pay $150 because... You, you bear half the responsibility. But he is asking Wilf for $75. Would you like to know how much $75 is in 1922 dollars? Yes, I definitely would. He, Wilf is on the hook for a little over $1,300. So that is the money. And now again, remember, ladies and gentlemen, $1,300 is not nothing. But, you know, in a pinch... I could come up with that. Lids could come up with that in a pinch because we have credit and we have like ways and savings and all that kind of stuff, but not in 1922 lids, no credit cards. There was, um, you, and you know, Wilf is, is a man who, you know, sold his crop. And once the, that, that crop is sold, that's going to have to be kind of it for the year. Uh, that's the money that you have to float you. And he does not have $75 to do that. So he goes to the bank for, uh, to, it's for a loan of $35 because he managed to find money that uh, his wife had squirreled away through the house. I don't know why she decided to like hide money in a can of flour, but she did. Moms do that. I don't know. My grandmother did it. My mother did it. I don't understand. I, I still wouldn't be surprised if we found like a tobacco tin in my grandma's blungs or my mom's stuff that has like 50 bucks in it. Like I, I'll never understand, but what moms do it. I don't know why she, she like the, um, the, the level of which Arlette had hidden money could probably be a window into how much she didn't trust her husband with the finances, because even so far as like hiding in a can of flour, that's very strange. Why would you do that? But then the he finds more money hidden away inside the lining of a hat. So in the closet and on the top shelf in a hat box in the hat within the lining of the hat. Here's like another like, you know, 20 bucks or something like that. Like, good Lord. Like, why are you hiding it this well? I think that having a little window into women, especially women who had lived in the country. Uh, there's letters within my family from my great grandmother that talk about having people send silk stockings from Toronto to, to Shillington because they don't have, not only do they not have stores up in Shillington in the 20s that sell silk stockings or white tea for that matter, they can't find decent tea up there. So they have people send it from Toronto, which must have cost a pretty penny back then. But she, the other women there like her stockings, so they want to, they covet the things they see, if you get it. Oh. 
a lesson from <laughs> the other horror yeah. movies here from Seven. But they uh, they want to have like the 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 presence, the look of somebody beyond their means. So not only would she have her money hidden away because maybe she's worried that Wolf will spend it foolishly or spend it on the farm because that's where I think that all of his money is spent. He doesn't he doesn't seem to be a huge drinker. Like he drinks, but he's not like spending his money on drinking it seems. Yeah. So I don't know where she would be worried he was going to spend this money like he's going to buy more farm equipment or a new truck like oh bummer. I think that she has it in her hat so that if she's in town and somebody mentions something that is beyond her means, she would have money so she could appear citified. I really think that's that's a lot of the draw when it comes to Arlette. And I did want to throw on a note about like some of the women in this film, by today's standards, don't have a lot of mm-hmm. say in what they do. And squirreling money away is one way to exert some sort of control over your life. Whether it be that you're worried someone's going to take it from you or you're going to need it because you'll be all alone, all those other really surface level reasons. A lot of them are like deeper psychological reasons, whether it be that I want to be able to show myself up when someone might think I'm uncultured or be low their social status if I don't have money. Mm -hmm. Squirreled away in weird little accessible places for me that only I know about so that I can afford the, the nice tea and the silk stockings when I want them or to not appear as lesser and to also be able to assert some sort of control because as you see with Shannon having no say into in what happens to her body like it's all Hank's fault because Hank didn't keep in his pants no one talks about Shannon Mm -hmm. Shannon didn't have a decision as to whether she had a penis in her or not apparently and Shannon doesn't have a choice as to whether she gets to keep a child or not apparently or if there are other medical ways to take care of this little problem as they say mm-hmm. shannon won't have a choice when she returns either shannon doesn't have a choice when she doesn't even have a choice whether to return or not because hank takes that decision away from her too so like all of this stuff is out of women's hands in the 20s like it really was mm. the only strong woman we've seen is sort of hateful and uh easy to hate and is dead now so I like the think that's a, a bigger reason why she had all the money squirreled away. So I've kind of gone on a tangent about the money, but no, yeah. it's that's good stuff, Liz. Honestly, and uh, you know, I never would have thought of it that way. Uh, the exertion of, of a small amount of control that's very, very fascinating and also very true. And I hadn't, I, I know that the neighbor's wife, whose name he keeps escaping me, he's played by um, a, a fucking actor that I've seen in like a million things james burrow or burrowy or whatever it's neil mcdonough and harl as in harlan which is a great country name i love the name harlan always always have but harl oh gotcha gotcha harl next door um, yeah harl yeah. Yeah, uh, his his wife was the most what i would define as like dish raggy where she's like whatever you think is best dear although you know she uh takes matters into her own hands eventually when i first saw this film this sequence that happens next is possibly the weirdest aspect of the film to me in which it seems like a massive tangent where all of a sudden we are dealing with the sweetheart bandits. We are in a, in a Bonnie and Clyde 
like scenario, Hank has taken Shannon and through a series of unfortunate events requires money. So he starts robbing people, gets a little bit of money, can buy a gun, starts robbing banks. They become outlaws like the like famous outlaws. They're like Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, interestingly enough, who would uh, have their crime spree, spree and die about a decade after this canonically would be happening. I, I remember watching this, and this is all told to Wilf through montage of the most direct haunting or vision or whatever have you of the corpse of Arlette and the sequence in which she's uh, this corpse looking much like she did when she was in the hole before they had filled it in, being ferried by this uh, plague of rats by her feet as she's walking down into the basement where Wilf is hiding from her. This sequence is very well done. I, I, I very love this, but Wilf says that she whispered things to me that only the dead could know. And that is the ultimate fate of his son, which is a montage of this crime spree that eventually, from what I could understand, they were made at a diner and Shannon was shot in the stomach and they crashed the car. He carried Shannon to this barn or shed out in the middle of a field in the, in the wintertime. Mind you, th yeah, that's the thing that I should point out. A lot of this fucking movie ends in the dead of winter. This uh, this eventually, their unborn child dies, then Shannon dies, and then Hank dies. Did he kill himself? Is that what the story was? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He shot himself, uh, cuddled up in a bed with his dead girlfriend. A tragic end to, to some crazy mixed up kids' lids. What do you think about this sequence itself? Do you think this is too much of a tangent, or do you think it's in keeping or what is it just me it's it's a great tangent and it works really well i think in juxtaposition to wolf's lifestyle of just quiet steady country life crickets books candlelight farm work that's it the occasional cow living in the house because you've got no friends and no money to patch your roof and it's the only sense of warmth and the barn's falling down so where else is it going to live kind of lifestyle that Wolf has uh, built for himself he's not going to get news anywhere else but his dead wife because he has no radio he's not going to town because his vehicle isn't running and he has no friends because Harl has told him politely to get off of his property and never come back because Harl's wife left him because of this whole, not only has his daughter gotten knocked up, she's gotten dragged half across the world and now killed basically by Hank. So, and this has been happening for a while. He cut his hand off. He lost his hand because a rat bit it and then it got infected. And then he tried to go get medical help. His car wouldn't start in the snow and it kept trying to turn over. I love that sequence. Eventually... I believe it's the sheriff finds him and brings him to a hospital and the infection in his hand is so far gone, all they can do is amputate. So like it's got this feeling of like Hank is so utterly all alone, so utterly all alone. 
he has no one else that would have given him this information. And it's during this time when he is living in his ramshackle, falling down house with no money, no friends, too much booze maybe, and these fever dreams of his of his dead wife and the rats constantly at him that he gets this information about what his son is doing, which works as a juxtaposition of like, things are still going on in the world. Things are going on in the world to such a rabid pace that now your son, little Hank, little Henry, has now become a sweetheart bandit and is roving across the state, shooting people and stealing things and has his pregnant wife and is a media sensation. If he would have had like newspapers and stuff at the ready, he would have known this stuff, but he doesn't, there's no television to tell him. And it comes to him in the most Stephen King way possible, where in, in Pet Cemetery, you get that sort of like uh, dead telephone kind of thing with a corpse coming to you or a corpse coming to you in your dreams. Or sometimes the television will spark to life and, and tell you these things or a, a phone that's not connected to the wall will call you from beyond the dead. You've got all of these like necromantic sort of ways in a lot of Stephen King and a lot of horror in general, but Stephen King's really great for it, where the dead will speak and tell you what you need to know, what you don't know, the secret things, right? So I, I really do like that. And I don't feel it's too much of a tangent because it really reinforces the not only are things going on in the world around Wilf and always have been, Things are going on in the world around wealth to such an extent that his son is now a dangerous celebrity. I think that um, you really hit the nail on the head with your explanation. And I'm coming around to it now, too, now that you've put it into a perspective that I haven't thought of. It's that one of Wilf's fears is his son moving away to the city, forgetting the life that he came from and becoming a person that his father no longer recognizes. And because of him killing his wife or it it all came to pass exactly like he feared anyways, killing his wife didn't stop anything from happening that he was afraid of. It just happened again in a different way that, that to, to me is this, this uh, dark poetic justice that I think that this film does really well. Um, When Hank dies and Shannon dies, they're brought, their bodies are brought back. This is a huge media sensation. The body of of the, the dastardly Henry brought back to his hometown for his father to pick up the coffin or for the, pick up the body. He's got away. Uh, there's like press around. They got the little. They got their Stetsons. They got the little press things in their hat and like the big flash bulb cameras. It's a very chaotic scene, and you could see that um, not only is Wilf in this position where he has to pick up the body of his dead son, uh, he is now this is all this hubbub, all this all these city folk around him, flashing cameras and giving him the center of attention. This is the last thing that a simple man wants. And, you know, I, I, I do feel bad for this, like, sad guy who it does seem like he got possessed by something in order to kill his wife. And it's all falling apart around him. All of the things that he wanted to happen the least are happening in this most explosive and demonstrable way. And 
when he finally gets to view his son's body, well, the rats got to the bodies. They weren't able to find the bodies in time. And, well, uh, old uh, Hank looks pretty bad. Most of his face has been not off. They do a pretty good job with the few times that we are subject to, um, like, makeup and effects here. You know, we do get some, some corpse action with not only the freshly dead Arlette in the well, we also get Arlette the corpse walking upright and talking and moving. We get all sorts of corpsey looking stuff. We get rats crawling out of her mouth and stuff, which is fun, as you noted earlier. And, and this is fairly brief, but a pretty gory representation of a dead body that's been chewed on by rats. And I think fairly accurate. Um, one thing that I wanted to back up on that we kind of glossed over is the question of the location of Wilfred's wife. The sheriff comes to him after his hand has been amputated in the hospital to tell him that they found a body that was in a ditch that was very decomposed. Now, the skull was missing the back teeth. And then they just asked him the simple question of like, was your wife missing her back teeth? Now, Wilfred didn't really answer, but had this sort of long pause. And that was the sheriff basically saying like, well... She was on the road and got picked up and she had, you said you, she had her good dresses with her and $200 cash and her good jewelry with her. Well, she got robbed and killed and left for dead and yeah, that's the end of it. Like, I was like, good Lord, it must have been nice to be a murderer in 1922. <laughs> We're like... Oh my god, totally. Because then you're like, yeah, that's not her. We know that. Who is that body? I mean, well, who cares? Because it's just a body and now we got this one wrapped up nice and tight. Job's over. Like, it, it is nice to be a murderer in 1922. It's also nice to be reaping the benefits of another murderer's work mm -hmm. because this dead body in the ditch that nobody has any real explanation for because we know it's not Arlette is uh, yet another mystery. Poor Hemingford home. It's such a rowdy, rowdy area all of a sudden. <laughs> we got the bodies of sweetheart bandits coming back. We got our handless Joe living in his ramshackle rundown farm with his cow that he shoots in the head because it hasn't eaten for months. And this is all happening within the span of a year. Of course, it starts out in the spring and I really like the progression of the seasons in this film i mean it's not as stark as something like requiem for a dream where the four parts are are noted with the seasons quite dramatically it is noted here definitely but i like the progression it feels a little more smoother and natural and a little less jarring once winter hits and it's almost like we forget that we started out in the spring because it was already so hot yeah um harl says to Wilf, who's also like, you know, th these guys, what I like about them is they're just always like huddled up with like a drink and a blanket over them. And they're always just like staring off into space. And again, what do you do? What do you do in 1922? Like, I guess you just stay huddled up in a blanket and stare off into space haunted by shit. Harl's in a position where he says, you know, it's funny. We started out the year with wives. And now we don't have wives because 
the whatever you think is best dear Harl wife, she just fucked off after Shannon was killed. Then, and then he's like, we had two kids and they're both dead and their farms are in shambles. And then he just adds, at least I have both my hands, I guess, <laughs> which is like the, the one area in which Wilf is, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but shorthanded. And the um, it, it, it really lets you know how things really, really went to shit. And then the ultimate indignity lids, the ultimate indignity for old Wilf. He has to sell his farm and move to the city of fools, Omaha. And he becomes a factory worker, just like he was afraid that he was going to. Which, you know, if he would have lived up to his acting job that he did at the celebration night with Arlette when she was getting drunk of, yes, we've decided we're going to move to the city. We'll give it a shot. We'll sell the farm. I'll get a job. That is where he would be. He would be in this hated factory doing another man's work. And he would still have a son and a wife at least. Or maybe she would have fucked off by then. She probably would have, I, I suspect. But either way, he would have been in such a much better position instead of working this nine to five for another person at a dangerous job and having very little to show for it except for the same deep darkies that haunted him at Hemingford Home, Nebraska late at night by candlelight with his books and his lowing cows. It haunts him now in his electrified hot and cold running rooms in Omaha. He said that any time that he tried to lose himself in his work. Now, this is a man, by the way, who likes to work. He finds that there's a nobility into hard work. He is a hardworking, simple man. And when he feels when bad thoughts came to him, he would find comfort in work. He would lose himself into his chores. And he says in a line, when he tried to lose himself into his work, that's when they came. And that's when he would start to see that he's plagued by these rats that will not leave him alone. And even when he's writing his confession, the rats are like in the walls of the, the home that he's living in. And they start gnawing through. And I think I like that bookend because we started out with a voiceover narration of this is my confession of 1922. My name is Wilf and this is how it all went to shit. And we start out with him noticing that there's something in the walls in this rooming house and they start like crawling around. And every time we do flash to this rooming house and a fairly clean cut, slightly older, probably successful looking Wilf mm -hmm. that has kind of gotten his shit together in the city. Like he's not drunk. He's not stumbling around, staring off into space. He looks like a, a fairly regular guy. But he is side-eyeing the scratchings in the walls. And they start, like, clawing mm -hmm. through the wall throughout the movie. And by the end of it, they have chewed a hole in the wall and are going to come pouring out. So I really like that, that bookend and that tempo of the three acts of this film sort of bookended by the rats being in the walls, the rats chewing through the walls, and the rats coming out of the walls in the rooming house. When this film ends, we have uh, Wilf confronted by the spirits the, of his son, Henry, Shannon, and his wife in the center. Both of the kids have their faces 
chewed off by rats. Uh, Arlette looks like she does uh, pretty much throughout the entire film since she died. And uh, Henry is holding a knife and says, you know, don't worry, it'll be it'll be quick, which could make you think about the fact that, like, you know, he did say that it would be quick when they were killing Arlette and it was anything but quick. It was quite the struggle to finally kill her. Um, two questions. One, is this happening? Did they kill Wilf? Or is this just, again, in his, in his mind? It ends like Pet Cemetery. Hence why I'm wearing my Pet Cemetery shirt. <laughs> Does the wife come back? Does the wife kill him? Does he have a zombie wife? Mm -hmm. Did she even come back? Is he, has he lost his mind and he didn't even bury her? In the pet cemetery, same sort of thing. Like, is he even in this rooming house? <laughs> Are the rats coming through the walls? Have the rats ever been coming through the walls? Have the rats ever been doing the fucking shit he is ascribing to the rats ever since the beginning? Has this been what he's not facing, that he killed his wife and is guilty and should go to the police and turn himself in from the beginning? Is that what the rats are? Scratching at the walls of his mind, so to speak. Or is this, yes, really very real because of the the entity that lives in Hemingford home underneath of his old farmstead that has possessed, perhaps, the rats himself, his wife, dead son, all those things. Is this all so tainted that ghosts and zombies and the walking dead exist and they've come to claim him? Or at the end of that one creep show bit where he drowns, the something to tide you over bit with Leslie Nielsen, um, does Ted Danson come back <laughs> as a sea zombie <laughs> and kill his killer? It's, it's, it's so hard to tell. And being a rational person, it's like, no, the rats only half existed to begin with, let alone his whispering dead wife and now his returned son he's probably hanging himself that's probably what's happening it's funny that you bring up the pet cemetery of it all because cassandra when the movie ended literally said oh my god it ends just like pet cemetery and i said it, it oh yeah you're right you're right it does so that was very cool um yeah i'm the rational part of me is just yeah he's he killed his wife and got away with it a rat bit his hand because he lives on a farm and rats get in there sometime and he didn't take care of it and it got infected and then it had to get amputated. His son was is young and a teenager and dating a young girl. He got a girl pregnant. It's happened before. It'll happen again. To, and that's just what happens to young kids that have continuous unprotected sex. And... Then his son left because they threatened to take his girl and his unborn child away. They needed money to survive. They became criminals and then they died like criminals. And again, they got eaten by rats because rats eat dead things and they're on farmland. So, and, and, you know, how did he learn about what his son did? Um, because there's newspapers and they were famous. And so he even like did a weird sort of dark pilgrimage in which he went to the places that his son went to try to sort of live 
vicariously through those experiences, like trying to, what would have this been like for my son? I'm going to go to the places that I know that he went. Um, all of these things are completely rational things that can happen, do happen all the time. And the only thing that makes it supernatural is because uh, Wilf is prescribing all of these coincidences together into this curse of this haunting because he got overwhelmed with this quote-unquote other person this dark passenger this presence to kill his wife when he killed his wife over money and land the same thing people kill their spouses over all the time so so but i i do think if anything it's the most stephen king to leave it so ambiguous if you want to see ghosts if you want to see supernatural if you want it's the beam it's 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 all of these things that occur uh if it's even you know he who walks between rows so uh it could also be that there's a lot of corn in this movie yeah and that happened right down the road gatlin's right down the road from hemingford so it's all the same sort of entity or whatever driving people to do these fucked up things but or it could be, you know what, this guy that was, you know, turned over a new leaf after being down on his luck, checked into a boarding room and into a boarding house. And there happened to be some construction that displaced a lot of very hungry rats from underground that bust into the walls and uh, attacked him, killed him. It's not the first person that would have died from wild animals, even as small as rats biting them. But it would be more fun if he got killed by ghosts. We could just admit that up front. Still very Stephen King. Every act, every angle of this. The one thing, like you had said, is it too gonzo that his son becomes the sweetheart bandit and goes on a killing spree? And the the one thing that I don't like about a lot of movies is that if you leave the room for five minutes and come back and it's like a whole different movie, this one does kind of have the same thread and mood. But when you're in the uh, Mickey and Mallory portion of the show, you could leave the room and come back and be like, what the fuck happened? Uh, that's my only real point that I didn't like. To that point, like so when I was watching this movie, Cassandra literally said, like I look down at my phone for a fucking second and I come up and he's completely fallen apart. It's like he was just standing there in his farmhouse and then cut to he's like hoveled like 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 burning his hand like in the winter and his farm has collapsed and he's like chattering. And I and I was like, oh my yeah, if you if you look away from this movie for a second, you're like, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Um, so what do we got next for him? Coming up next, we can pick up some more Stephen King if you want. Do you feel like continuing the Stephen King of Palooza with something fun and uplifting like apt people? Fun and uplifting. Or Secret Window? <laughs> that's up to you. The last one was a West pick. So what do you feel like doing? Coming up next, we do not know. We have not planned. We have not picked. There are some Stephen King titles in the running and of course there are some newer horror things that have come to mind but we have not actually decided on a movie to do next yeah we're flying by the seat of our pants here but don't worry there's gonna be something and it's gonna be something cool thank you for hanging out with us you can find us of course as ever on splatterpictures.net special hello thank you to thomas who said a very special kind thing about my 
probably passing my French classes because that's part of why we've been on semi start and stop hiatus lately. Because I've been in French classes that have been uh, taking place after hours and I am so exhausted. It's insane. Perhaps we should do a French film, a French horror film, just in, in keeping with this. But yeah, thanks, Thomas, for sending your best wishes and my luck tomorrow on my big old French uh, exam. Yeah, that's true. Also, if uh, don't forget that you were busying yourself with a series of YouTube panels that you did for the Spinsters of Horror. Um, and that's all available right now. If you want to hear uh, Lydia talk about, uh, you did some what? French Extreme? You did some... Uh, uh, necrophilia type uh, stuff i know you talked about necromantic and uh, and stuff like that so uh if you want to hear talk about a lot kind of crazy stuff you can find the spinsters of horror on youtube and they, they were part of panels so that was very cool yeah amy jean vosper who also appeared on cbc alongside Wes. she's been on my show uh previously as well too and she's been on an episode of dead air when Wes had done an episode with his mom talking about true crime and i had done an episode with Amy talking about some French, older French sort of horror. Uh, yeah, it's a really cool panel talking about horror films that are just a shade too dark. It's not films. It's films that me and Wes have watched from time to time for sure. And we bring up from time to time, but nothing that we really would talk about on this show. And it's certainly nothing that I would talk about on my YouTube show where I would talk about the book portions the book counterparts of these extreme horror but yeah if you're into like serbian film and all that <laughs> corpse banging speciality <laughs> that necrophilia films are uh yeah it was a really cool panel it was really fun to be a part of too and it also was another thing that interrupted our flow here at dead air but that's okay i always will celebrate an interruption of flow provided there is corpse fucking involved. And on that note, I'm Wes Knife. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>